You know, one of the greatest mysteries that I think I have ever encountered in my Christian life is the mystery of falling away. Maybe you've known someone who was a believer in Christ who walked with the Lord for a certain amount of time, but then just walked away. Maybe you, in your own life, have experienced times where that nearness, that sweetness, that closeness of fellowship with the Lord that once was almost second nature to you has suddenly become elusive and you just feel like there's 10,000 miles between you and the Lord. Well, if you have ever encountered either of those phenomena, seeing someone you love who walked away, or perhaps going through a time where you walked away yourself, the Bible has very good news for you tonight. Although walking away from the Lord, falling away is a reality in this life, so is God's open invitation to return. In the book of Hosea, chapter 6 and verse 1, we read these incredibly encouraging words. It says, Come and let us return to the Lord. For He is torn, but He will heal us. He is stricken, but He will bind us up. After two days He will revive us. On the third day, He will raise us up, that we may live in His sight. Let us know, let us pursue the knowledge of the Lord. His going forth is as established as the morning. He will come to us like the rain, like the latter and former rain to the earth. Well, the encouraging words, the good news tonight is that although falling away from the Lord can be an occupational hazard in the Christian life, God's arms are always open wide. The way of return is always a real and live possibility for us. The big question that we've got to ask is, how exactly do we return to the Lord? How exactly does a person who falls away from the Lord get back on solid spiritual ground? Well, tonight, in the book of 1 Samuel chapter 6, in a chapter of Scripture that we could call the road home. We're going to follow along in the account of the return of the Ark of the Covenant from Philistine territory back into the heart of national Israel. And as we trace the course of the Ark returning to Israel, we're going to learn a thing or two about the road home that God gives to each and every one of us when we begin to drift in our walk with God. We're going to see three very important insights into what the Bible calls the fine art of true repentance. First, we're going to see tonight a section of Scripture that I believe can give us true insight into the role of faith in true repentance. That our connection with God is based on not our works, but the finished work of Jesus and our trust and our confidence in Him. Secondly, we're going to see in this passage tonight the fruit of of true repentance. The ultimate confirmation that we have, in fact, returned to that right relationship with the Lord. Not something that can be done externally, but something that the Lord can only do internally through our hearts. And finally, we're going to see tonight the foundation of true repentance. That our correction from God must come from nothing else and nothing less than God's Word. That that is what is going to bring stability to our lives and get us off the roller coaster that so many Christians end up riding 
in their relationship with God. Let's pray and ask the Lord to open our understanding to this very common but poorly understood phenomena of returning to the Lord. Thank You, Father, that the road to return to You is paved with grace. We thank You, Lord, that You accept us and love us, not on the basis of our commitments and promises to try harder for You, not on the basis of living up to a series of commitments or promises that we might have made. No, our only hope for continuing, ongoing, dare I even say eternal fellowship with You, is trusting in You and Your finished work alone. Please, Lord, open this passage of Scripture to us and let us not only understand this important part of history as You've laid it out within the Word, but let us also understand the story that You are teaching us tonight through Your Word. The story of our own lives. And I pray if there are any out there that that feel like there's a distance, a separation between them and You, that, Lord, You would bridge that gap tonight and bring them close. We love You and we thank You. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, if you've been with us in our study of the book of 1 Samuel, you know that, uh, in a sense, we discovered last week that in the kingdom of God, turnabout is fair play. We saw the Philistines capture the ark of God, only to discover that it was, in fact, the ark that had captured them. Systematically, we saw God turn the tables on the Philistines, first breaking down their idols, quite literally the idol Dagon being smashed to pieces in the presence of the true and living God. Then we saw their broken health, that their refusal to give up the ark caused God to visit them with judgment. Tumors began to break out on them with the picturesque terminology behind it in the old King James of hemorrhoids. Uh, We don't know if that was exactly what was going on. Evidence suggests that really they were struck with something far more serious, the bubonic plague. But clearly their health was broken. And then finally their will was broken. We saw these different Philistine cities get into a game of hot potato with the ark. It was like, no, we don't want it. Let us give you the honor of keeping this treasure. And finally, after going through the five major cities of the Philistines, the Philistines had had just about enough. And so in desperation, they turned to the only source of spiritual insight that they had, their own pagan priests for guidance. And that's where we pick things up in 1 Samuel chapter 6, beginning at verse 1. There we read, Now the ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months. And the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners, saying, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us how we should send it to its place. Now, I think it's very interesting that these Philistines turned to a group called their priests and diviners. That is the soothsayers, the the people that were basically in the employ of the temples of the pagan gods to try to figure out what to do with the true and living God. And, you know, I guess it would only make sense if you are surrounded by paganism, you're going to tend to get a pagan perspective on things. Unfortunately, sometimes even for us as believers, it's a lot easier for us sometimes to listen to the voices of this world when it comes time for wisdom and guidance and direction from God rather than to God Himself. And you know, that grieves, I think, the heart of God. When we take a look at the false and the wrong and the failed pathways of life and try to build our foundation on them, 
it really only ends up causing us grief. In the book of Isaiah, chapter 8, and verse 19, listen to what the Lord's take was on going to these false sources of guidance for our counsel and our comfort. Isaiah chapter 8 and verse 19 says, And when they say to you, Seek those who are mediums and wizards who whisper and mutter, should not a people seek their God? Should they seek the dead on behalf of the living? To the law and to the testimony, if they do not speak according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. They will pass through it hard-pressed and hungry, and it shall happen when they are hungry that they will be enraged and curse their king and their God and look upward. Then they shall look to the earth and see trouble and darkness, gloom of anguish, and they shall be driven into darkness. What God is basically saying to us there is, you know, you're going to get what you ask for. If you go to these sources of spiritual insight, like the horoscope in the paper, like the psychic hotlines, and you would not believe how many Christians, bona fide born-again Christians, get sucked into these things. We are no better off than the Philistines seeking the guidance of their own priests when it comes to dealing with the true and living God. But the counsel that these priests and diviners gave is kind of fascinating on a certain level. Take a look at verse 3 of chapter 6 again. It says, So they said, If you send away the ark of God of Israel, do not send it empty, but by all means return it to him with a trespass offering, Then you will be healed, and it will be known to you why his hand is not removed from you. I think it's fascinating that these pagan priests, these diviners, these people who essentially spent most of their time bowing down before an image with a head like a fish and a body like a man, who would, for instance, try to divine future events by ripping open the entrails of various animals and seeking omens in their vital organs, that people that were that devoted to paganism suddenly, boom, hit upon something that sounds extremely scriptural. Hey, if you're going to return this ark, you better include a trespass offering. Well, any of you who were in our study of the book of Leviticus know that a trespass offering was part and parcel of the worship of national Israel. And so it's very clear that these pagan priests had at least enough of a scouting report on what Israeli religion was all about to know that when their God was offended, they would attempt to appease their God by making things right, by presenting a trespass offering. And I think there's a very important insight for us here. You know, when Satan wants to lead people astray, we've said it before here, we'll say it again, he doesn't show up dressed like the guy on the Underwood deviled ham can, right? He doesn't come up speaking with this horrible voice, foaming at the mouth, falling all over the floor and saying, hey, I'm here to ruin your life. Now, the Bible says that Satan is a lot more subtle than all of that. He knows he's going to catch a lot more flies with honey than he is with vinegar. And so when he especially wants to sow false doctrine within the church, inevitably he cloaks his agenda with very spiritual sounding terms, with a seeming familiarity with the Scriptures. You remember the temptation of Jesus. You remember how Satan came to him. First he told Jesus to turn stones to bread. And when Jesus quoted the Scripture, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. You remember how Satan responded? He told him to cast himself off of the top part of the temple. And then he quoted Scripture. 
He said, For he shall give his angels charge concerning you, that you may not dash your foot against the stone. Oh, you want to play Bible quotation, Jesus? I'll take Bible quotation for 500, Alex. Satan knows the Word of God. And so do his emissaries. I have seen so many Christians get taken in by ploys from cults that start out with words like, well, we're Christians just like you. Or, oh yes, we're into the Bible as well. But when they throw these terms out, oftentimes what they are saying and what you are processing are two different animals. This is driven home to me when I was a youth pastor in Southern California. We showed the movie The Godmakers, which is an expose of the more bizarre doctrines of Mormonism at our church fellowship. And lo and behold, coming to our church fellowship were a number of Mormon missionaries who wanted to set us straight about what Mormonism was really all about. And so when I saw a couple of these missionaries get a hold of a group of my high school kids, I thought, boy, I've got to cut this off at the pass. And so I got between this missionary and these kids, and you know, he would say, no, 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 that's all wrong. We're Christians just like you are. I said, no, you're not. For instance, do you believe that you're saved by grace through faith? And this Mormon missionary looked at me without batting an eye and said, absolutely, we believe that. That's the cornerstone of our faith. And I was dumbstruck. I thought, how in the world can that be? Everything I've studied about Mormonism says that they are saved by works, at least in their own mind. Well, fortunately, sitting behind me at this point was one of the people who brought the film, a woman named Dolly Sackett, who was deeply involved with Mormonism before being saved. In fact, she was known as the grandma to all the Mormon missionaries in the area for taking care of them for all these years. Her husband, Chuck Sackett, was a former temple worker in the Mormon church. And while I was staying there dumbstruck, Dolly behind me piped up, Elder, tell him what you mean by saved. And this Mormon missionary's face turned about eight shades of red. And he didn't say anything, he just looked at the ground. And Dolly said, he knows he's lying to you. In fact, he knows that what you mean by saved and what he means by saved are two different things. In his way of thinking, all it means to be saved is you get a body for judgment. In other words, you can be eternally lost and still be saved, according to him. Isn't that right, elder? And this Mormon missionary kind of looked around and stammered. He said, well, well, yeah. And I looked at him and I said, how can you claim to be representing the truth of God when you sit here and are purposefully deceptive? And at that point, he excused himself. But he had all the terminology down. He knew exactly what to say to evangelical Christians. He'd been well-trained. Just like these pagan priests could throw out terms like a trespass offering. It sounded very spiritual. But which spirit were they serving? Not the Spirit of God. We need to be very careful. We need to be very discerning. Not everyone who talks the God talk to you knows the God of the Bible. Very important to grasp this. Verse 4, Then they said, what is the trespass offering which we shall return to him? They answered, five golden tumors and five golden rats, according to the number of the lords of the Philistine, for the same plague was on all of you and on your lords. Therefore you shall make images of your tumors and images of your rats that ravage the land, and you shall give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from you, from your gods, and from your land. Now, here's where the trap snaps shut. They were talking the godly God talk, right? They were using all the right terminology. But just like the cults in our day, 
Notice where their advice was leading. If you want to be right with God, offer to God the works of your hands. Fashion a likeness of those tumors. Fashion a likeness of rats. Now, some people would say, well, why, why a rat? Well, again, this lends credence to the theory that they were suffering from bubonic plague. Evidently, how God judged them was by causing their crops and their cities to be overrun with rodents. We know from the Middle Ages that bubonic plague is spread by the fleas that ride piggyback on rats, on rodents. And so we can probably put together the methodology that God was using to bring about His judgment. And so they thought that by fashioning a likeness of what God had done in judgment, they could communicate to God, yes, we got the message, and yes, here's how we're going to show we're really sorry. We're going to take something very precious, something that we've worked hard for, we're going to fashion it with our hands, and that will be our offering. That will be our atonement to you. You see, every single cult, every single false religion in this world throws out basically the same pitch. Do you understand that? It basically says, you can be right with God. You can experience oneness with the grand consciousness based on what you do. Based on doing enough. Based on making a personal sacrifice. Based on the works of your own hands. You see, there's only two ways to approach God in this world. Only two ways that you and I will ever encounter. Did you know that? One is by works. Either your deeds or getting your mind in the right place so that you can bridge the gap between you and God. It is a, a system that begins with man's feet squarely planted on earth and encourages man to reach the heavens and grasp heavenly glory by his own effort. Or, the other side of it is not religion, but relationship. It is the acknowledgement that you and I are powerless to save ourselves, that there is no work of our hands that we could offer that would be a sufficient atonement for our sins. But that God Himself, understanding that, has taken the initiative and bridged the gap. He has reached down and saved us by His grace. His unmerited favor. Not based on anything you or I will ever do. What does this have to do with falling away? Well, a lot. An awful lot. Because you know, when I encounter people who with the best motives in the world want to get their lives back together with the Lord. Maybe they've walked away. Maybe they've lived an inconsistent life. Maybe they've stumbled and fallen. I have seen over and over again an intense desire on their part to offer to God something to balance the books again. You ever been in a situation like that? Maybe it was when you were a kid and you were at youth camp. And on that last hyper-emotional night, you know, where they get everybody all stirred up and you're all around the campfire and, and everybody's standing up and giving their testimonies and they're, they're, they're bringing their cigarettes and they're throwing them in the fire. Or, or maybe you're writing out your secret sin and you wrap it on a pine cone with a piece of paper and you toss that in the fire and you make this vow to God, God, I'm going to be right with you because I promise never to do that again. Now, is there anything wrong with wanting to deal with areas of sin in our lives? Is there anything wrong with wanting to make concrete changes in our lives? No. But 
it is deadly when we get the cart before the horse. When we realize that there is nothing we can do to make it up to God. Rather, it is only by receiving God's mercy that we are right with Him. Understand this. If you think that by changing your lifestyle, by stopping a certain behavior, you are more right with God than you were if you weren't. That somehow by giving up something for a few days, or promising to God you're only going to listen to Christian radio for the next week, that somehow this atones for your sins, you've missed the whole point. You see, our good works can never be good enough to bridge the gap. Our good works can never reconcile us to a holy God. Consider for a moment what Isaiah 64 and verse 6 has to say about the futility of trying to please God by our good works. Isaiah 64 and verse 6 says this, but we all like an we are all like an unclean thing and all our righteousnesses are like filthy rags you see when we try to be right with god based on our own righteousness based on our own good works based on our own good deeds and that's the basis of our relationship with god it is just as offensive to god as coming into his presence and sticking in his face a filthy dirty smelly sweat sock And let me tell you something, I can crank out some pretty dirty, filthy sweat socks. And that's the last thing in the world I would want to inflict on anybody. But that's what we do when we base our righteousness with God on our own good works. So, what's the alternative? What will bridge the gap? Well, turn with me in your Bible to the book of Galatians. In the book of Galatians, chapter 2. The Apostle Paul having a very pointed conversation with no less a person than Simon Peter about the righteousness that God desires to give us through grace by faith said this, Galatians chapter 2 and verse 16, Paul said, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might not be just that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. That's a pretty extreme statement, isn't it? Your flesh won't be justified before God. My flesh won't be justified before God. Based on what we do, the only thing that will make us right with God is what God has done for us. The only way you and I can be saved is to receive it as a gift. Not by getting our act together. Not by trying harder. The only thing that we can do is receive salvation as a gift. And you know what? I think that's the toughest thing God has ever asked of anybody. Based on human nature. Stop and think about it for just a second. Remember what Jesus said in John chapter 6 and verse 29? Some first century truth seekers were saying a great question to him. What must we do that we may work the works of God? Do you remember what Jesus said? This is the work of God, that you believe in the name of the one whom he has sent. That's your work, you see, to believe, plus nothing. And that's what gets us. Because we like tangible things, you know. We like to get our pride involved with this. We like the gospel that says, oh yes, I'm right with God because of what Jesus has done and my good works. I'll get to heaven 
by God's mercy and a little help from the man upstairs. We are saved by grace after all we can do. You know, that's Mormonism. Sounds so all-American, doesn't it? And it sounds really appealing, especially when we've blown it because we want to make up for things. Hey, let me tell you, the Gospel of Jesus Christ would be far more attractive, far more easier for us to swallow. If we were to stand up here and say, you can be saved by grace through faith and putting a buck in the agape box. Because if you put a buck in the agape box, you can walk out of here and say, I did my part. I held up my end of the bargain. Now, God, you've got to do yours. Oh, but God asks for something far deeper than that. He says, trust me. Trust me to do for you what you could never do for yourself. Trust me that the sacrifice of my son dying on the cross was sufficient to make you right with me. Plus, nothing. See, you don't have to make up for your past. In fact, if you think you are atoning somehow for your past, by your Christian behavior right now, you're falling in to incredible false teaching. It's the opposite of the Gospel game. Now, understand something. The Bible says that we aren't saved by good works. Rather, we're saved for good works. And once we are made right with God, good works should flow from our lives. Don't get me wrong. But if you get that cart before the horse, you're just like these pagans fashioning their tumors and their images of of mice and rats and thinking that somehow by doing that they can clear the docket with God. God says it won't work. There's only one way to be made right with God. So, if you need to come back to the Lord, the first thing that you need to realize is that it's not even your will or your desire that brings you back to the Lord. It's Him reaching out to you. He's the one who takes the initiative. He is the only one who can make you whole. All you have to do is say yes to His promise. Now, that raises another question. Okay, well, if it's all about trusting God and it's not on the basis of any tangible work that I can do, this coming back to the Lord, this this fine art of repentance, if it's changing my mind and changing my heart and not necessarily these outward things primarily, I mean, they will follow, but not these outward things, how do I know that I've really come back to God? How do I know that I'm not just kidding myself? How do I know I'm not just playing mental mind games with the Bible And that this is real for me. Well, there is a reality that we can check our spiritual temperatures with. And I believe it's given to us in a very interesting way. Almost by taking a look at the opposite way the Philistines were trying to check out if they were right with God. Take a look at verse 6 of 1 Samuel chapter 6. These priests are again talking to these rulers of the Philistines. They said this, Why then do you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? When he did mighty things among them, did they not let the people go that they might depart? Once again, understand this. Not only did these guys seemingly know the deeds that godly people were doing, they also knew the doctrine, right? They knew Israel's history. They were very fluent in it all, although they were as far from God as they could possibly be. Understand this. It's not just about talking godly talk that gets you into heaven. It's about walking a godly walk as well. It's about being real in your walk with God, inside and out. You see, if Jesus Christ has taken up residency in your heart, you're going to change. 
I mean, in spite of yourself, you're going to be a new and different person. And I mean, that only makes sense if the God who created all things is indwelling you through His Holy Spirit. If He is living within you, then He is going to be living His life out through you too. And you know, sometimes that's the greatest blessing of the Christian life, I think. Taking a look at our lives and, and you know, we look back and we go, wow, things have really changed. I've really grown and I wasn't even trying. How do you like that? Or someone points out something out to us. You know, you used to really have a foul mouth and I noticed you don't use those words anymore. You know, when it's the work of God, we go, really? Huh. How do you like that? Because when God does a work, it's, it's naturally supernatural, you see. And so there is that change. And we've got to have more than a talk. We've got to have a walk as well. Now, these guys had the talk, but they also had another very toxic suggestion spiritually. Look at verse 7. It says, Now, therefore, take a new cart, take two milk cows, which have never been yoked, and hitch the cows to the cart, and take the, their calves home away from them. Then take the ark of the Lord and set it on the cart and put the articles of gold which you are returning to him as a trespass offering in a chest by its side. Then set it away and let it go. And watch, if it goes up by the road to its own territory, to Beth Shemesh, then he has done, to, done us this great evil. But if not, then we shall know that it is not his hand that has struck us. It happened to us by chance. Now, very interesting conclusion here. Notice what they're saying. I mean, this is a tremendous sign, by the way. Saying, okay, take these two milk cows that never had a yoke on them and put a yoke on them. Okay? I mean, the ones that have calves, and mama cows are usually pretty possessive about their calves. They don't want to be separated from them. You take these cows and you set them out on the road. And if they go straight up that road to the nearest point over the Israeli border and they don't deviate and they don't go from side to side or they don't come back to their own calves, then we'll know it was really God. Do you understand what's crazy about this? They've had seven months of successive plagues to let them know that this was really God being upset at them. But they're still going, well, stupid could this be by chance? You know that deal, you know, where we put the, uh, the ark in the temple of Dagon and we came in the next morning and it was bowed down before the ark. And then the next day we came back and it was bowed down, except this time it was smashed in pieces from the head and the hands before the ark. And... Oh, that could have just been coincidence, I guess. Right? Look, they're still holding out for hope. And you know, there's a real interesting insight here. They're looking for a sign, right? But have you ever noticed that people who start chasing signs are kind of like people who eat potato chips? One is never enough, right? Once you start getting addicted to signs and wonders, you can never get enough signs and wonders. Hey, don't get me wrong. God has done incredible signs and wonders here in this fellowship. I mean, we've seen people get healed. We've seen wonderful words of wisdom and knowledge and prophecy. God has intervened in so many wonderful ways supernaturally in the life of this church. But understand something. We don't follow signs and wonders. The Scripture says in the book of Mark chapter 16 that these signs and wonders shall follow those who believe. Don't get that out of order. Because once you start chasing signs, you know what our mentality is as people. God can do a tremendous miracle and for five minutes you'll be standing there in awe. And then in the back of your mind, this little voice will start saying, yeah, but how do you know that wasn't just dumb luck? 
just like these priests. Hey, you know, we'll set up this test, and if these cows go completely against their nature, and they go straight to this geographic point in Israel, and they're able to pull this thing, even though they've never been trained to pull anything, then we'll know it's God. But if not, it was all a coincidence. The last seven months we really don't care about, we need one more sign. One more sign. You know, Jesus really had some pointed words to say to people that become signs and wonders addicts. Oh, signs and wonders are great if they come into your life, but when they become your life, that's a problem. In the book of Matthew, chapter 12, and verse 38, we are told that some of the scribes and Pharisees answered Jesus, saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. One great sign of the Christian faith. One sign that will never let you down. The physical historical, actual resurrection of Jesus Christ. How do we know the Bible is true? Not because signs and wonders and miracles are happening around us all the time, although they can. It's a side issue. We know the message of Scripture is true because Jesus rose from the dead. As Jesus Himself said in John 14, 19, I share this at so many funerals and at deathbeds, and it is such a powerful source of comfort for people. Jesus' statement, because... I live, you will live also. That's the basis of our hope. That's the basis of our faith. Jesus didn't say, well, because you saw signs and wonders and you went to this rally and everybody got Holy Ghost goosebumps and spirit shivers, I live. No. He said, because I live. Because I've resurrected from the dead. That is your hope of everlasting life. That's what we've got to focus on, gang. That's the ultimate sign. These guys were looking for deeper proof. But you know something? God is very gracious. God understood their pagan orientation and God wanted to make a point. So look what happens in verse 10. Then the men did so. They took the two milk cows and hitched them to the cart and shut up their calves at home. And they set the ark of the Lord on the cart and the chest of the gold rats and the images of their tumors. Could you imagine being the guy who made the images of the tumors? Do you hold still? I want to capture that likeness. Gross. Then the cows headed straight for the road to Beth Shemesh and went along the the highway, lowing as they went. Understand something. Cows don't low unless they are very upset. I don't know if you've ever run into some of the cattle that we have running out on the ranch lands here. Every once in a while I'll go running in the uh, area just uh, outside of uh, Catalina. And there are some uh, pretty nasty groups of cows you get into out there. Some of those Brahma bulls and things like that. And... Boy, as soon as you get close, you hear them start lowing. They get upset. Well, these two cows are lowing all the way. Why? Because it is completely unnatural for them to be separated from their calves. Something supernatural was driving them on. And they did not turn aside to the right hand or the left, just as if they'd been perfectly trained. And the lords of the Philistines went after them to the border of Beth Shemesh. Now, the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley. And they lifted their eyes and saw the ark and rejoiced to see it. Then the cart came into the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh and stood there. A large stone was there. 
So they split the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. Nice reward for the cows there, by the way. The Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the chest that was with it. In it were the articles of gold and put them on the large stone. Then the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and made sacrifices the same day to the Lord. So when the five lords of the Philistines had seen it, they returned to Ekron the same day. Now, very interesting. The Philistines would only accept the idea that God had somehow forgiven them for their trespass by seeing a sign. Let me ask you a question. When you've gone through one of those times where you've done a spiritual face plant, where you've had a real header in your walk with God, wouldn't it be wonderful if God gave you a sign that everything was okay, that, that all was well between you and He? Boy, I know some people that are just dying for signs like that. They go, oh Lord, if you just answer my prayers in a really specific way, then I'd know that I was connected again with you. Oh Lord, if you give me a chance to witness to somebody and they come to know the Lord, then I know everything was okay between me and you. Did you know that God wants to give you a sign that things are right between you and He? But it's not something that you'll see externally like the Philistines did. The ultimate sign that God will give you that will let you know that you have really returned to the Lord is something internal, something the Lord Himself can only do. It's called the fruit of the Spirit. In the book of Galatians, again in Galatians chapter 5, we are told what this fruit of the Spirit is. We are told that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. You want to know that all is well between you and the Lord? Look for the internal sign. The internal sign of finding yourself a little bit more like Christ Jesus every day. The internal sign of a love that flows through you and is completely unnatural to you. A love and a joy that isn't based on circumstances. That deep-seated sense that all is well. A peace that comes over us. A peace, that sense that, no, there is no more distance between God and myself. Patience. Even in the midst of things that used to drive you nuts. Goodness. A desire to walk according to God's ways. Gentleness. Not insisting on your own ways or returning evil for evil. But being willing to back off and, and be willing to take that second place. Faithfulness. Oh, that desire to follow hard after the Lord, to have that intimacy and nearness of fellowship with Him. And self-control, not indulging the desires of the flesh. When you start to see these things happen, when you see your life change from the inside out, there need be no doubt in your mind that God is at work in you. That you are back online. That you are right with the Lord. Very important for us to see that fruit coming out of our lives. That's the best way we know that we've truly repented. Not just because we've turned away from certain things, but what we've turned toward as well. We've turned back to the Lord. You see, Christianity isn't just a no, no, no thing. A lot of people define their Christian life in just that way. Well, now I'm a Christian, I can't do this, and I can't do that, and I can't do the other. 
But instead, Christianity is a yes, yes thing. We're told in the New Testament that all the promises of God are yes and amen in Him. It's a freedom to live a different life. It's a freedom to love on a different level. It's a freedom to forgive and to forget the past. It's a freedom that comes from knowing that your eternal destiny is taken care of. And if God took care of your eternal destiny, then any problem you face in the here and now, He can surely handle. That's the ultimate assurance. That's the fruit of true repentance. But there was another final lesson to be learned here. Not just about what faith is in terms of turning to God. Not just what the fruit of true repentance is. But also a foundation that needed to be established. And this lesson, believe it or not, wasn't going to be taught to the Philistines. It was going to be taught to God's own people. Verse 17 says, These are the golden tumors which the Philistines returned as a trespass offering to the Lord. One for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Ashkelon, one for Gath, one for Ekron. And the golden rats, according to the number of all the cities of the Philistines, belonging to the five lords, both fortified cities and country villages, even as far as the large stone of Abel, on which they set the ark of the Lord, which stone remains to this day in the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh. Now notice, the Philistines kind of went overboard. Their priests said, uh, make five tumors and five rats out of gold, and that ought to take care of it. And again, five for each of the leaders of the Philistines, and five for their major cities. They went nuts. They made a rat for every minor city in, in Philistia. And so, you can see that fear was definitely running the show. What a blessing to know that fear doesn't need to run our lives as Christians. What a blessing that we can be motivated by something far more positive than all of that. We don't need to be chicken littles running around worrying about the sky falling because the Lord's with us. 2 Timothy 1.7 Oh, such a beautiful passage, especially in crazy days like these. For God has not given us a spirit of fear but of power and love and a sound mind. You see, that's the way the Lord wants us to live. And so, the Philistines really knew nothing about that. and Their offering was really a testimony to fear rather than faith. But faith seemingly was in short supply there in Israel. Look at this radical verse, 19. Then he struck the men of Beth Shemesh, the he being God there, because they had looked into the ark of the Lord. He struck down 50,070 men of the people, and the people lamented because the Lord had struck the people with a great slaughter. Now, believe it or not, this is a real problem passage. You might pick up on what the problem is. 50,070 men being struck for looking into the ark. Uh, that would require quite a parade of people looking into this small, pretty much three foot by four foot box, right? How in the world could you get that many people looking in the ark at once. Well, different scholars have different ideas about what's going on here. The consensus opinion seems to be that the 50,000 that you see in this passage was a scribal error that crept into the text and was preserved down through time because people weren't sure it was an error or not. It wasn't in the original text. Now, I know some of you out there are turning white and saying, so you're telling me my Bible is wrong? Well, understand what we are saying when we say that the Bible is without error. What we are saying is not that your New King James Bible is without error. 
What we are saying is, is that when God inspired the writers of the original manuscripts, they wrote without error. Down through time, through the transmission of Scriptures, through copying, however scrupulous that copying was, and it was incredibly scrupulous, there was always the possibility of certain errors entering into the text. How do we know this was an error? Well, very interesting, and it gets a little bit technical, but bear with me. In Hebrew, to write the term 50,070 men, you would include the Hebrew word and in the middle of this. It is always there when you have huge compound numbers like this. It is not there in this text. The ancient Jewish historian Josephus, in his antiquities, spoke of this event and spoke of 70 men of Beth Shemesh perishing at this time. And so when we compare and contrast and we take a look at other Hebrew texts, we come to the conclusion that it was probably 70 men who died there. Now, some people are saying, oh my gosh, so I can't trust my Bible anymore. No, far from it. Understand what God promises concerning the Word of God. In Psalm 12 and verse 6, the Scripture declares this, The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. You shall keep them, O Lord. You shall preserve them from this generation forever. Notice the words of the Lord are going to be preserved, but notice that Scripture also says they will be purified, like silver purified in a furnace. Even though we are relying on copies, even though we do not have the original manuscripts, because God has left us such an incredibly vast amount of manuscript wealth with which to compare and contrast, and insights like Josephus had, and insights of scholars who can tell us about that presence of the small Hebrew letter Vav in the middle, that word and that was missing here. Because of that, we can have preserved accurately what the original said. And I believe the original said that there were 70 men of Beth Shemesh who died from looking into the ark. If that just utterly confuses you, talk to me after the service and hopefully I'll be able to straighten all that out. But understand this. The Bible is an anvil that's worn out many hammers. Skeptics have railed against this book. Kings and people in power have tried to put it down. But they've only succeeded in causing the Word of God to shine more brightly. We live in a time where because of the manuscript evidence that is available to us, because of the, the level of scholarship that has been devoted, oftentimes with the avowed goal of destroying people's confidences in the Word of God, we can have absolute confidence that what we are reading is the divinely inspired Word of the Lord. We can be far more sure about our Bibles than even people who lived 150 years ago could be. And so that should give us great assurance here. But notice something else. Does something bother you about this passage? God knocks off 70 men of Israel because they looked inside the ark. They're going, oh man, I can understand that. I saw Raiders of the Lost Ark. I remember that scene where those Nazis looked in the ark and they got what was coming to them. I don't know if the same thing happened to these guys. It wouldn't surprise me. Maybe Spielberg couldn't have even done this justice. But why does God let him have it like this? I mean, after all, he's put up with these Philistines who don't know anything about the care and maintenance of the ark. And he hasn't been striking them down. Oh, sure, he's been making life pretty miserable with the tumors and the rats and everything else like this. But why this immediate judgment? One reason, God's people should have known better. 
In fact, God's people did something the Philistines never even dreamed about doing. The Philistines never looked inside the ark. They venerated the idea and respected the God of Israel enough that they weren't going to monkey with that. But here it comes back to God's people. They're like, oh yeah, I've always wanted to see what's in there. Let's take a look. Ah! God is a holy God. And God was establishing for the people of Israel that He was not to be trifled with nor treated like an idol. God is not a curiosity. He is the Lord of the universe. He is the true and living King. And you know, sometimes I think, because we emphasize so much the love of God, that sometimes we lose our awe of God and who He is. The Scripture tells us that God is love. But the Scripture also declares that our God is a consuming fire. You don't want to mess with Him. You don't want to play games with Him. The people of Beth Shemesh did and paid a great price. Verse 20, And the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before this holy Lord God? And to whom shall it go up from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kirjath-Jerim, saying, The Philistines have brought down the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up with you. These guys are playing hot potato with it now. Notice they start out rejoicing and now they don't want it around. Why? Because they liked the idea of religion, but they couldn't handle reality. They liked the idea that this focal point of the worship of national Israel was there. It gave the Chamber of Commerce something to brag about, probably. But when they realized they were dealing with the true and real and living God, boy, something became very clear. Either the worship of God was going to keep them from sin or sin was going to keep them from the worship of the true and living God. God could not come into their lives and have everything stay the same. Either they had to change or God had to go. And let's face it, maybe this is the most telling insight of all into that mystery of falling away. Now, sometimes we think God has abandoned us. Sometimes we just go, oh, I just woke up one morning and God just wasn't there for me anymore. <laughs> it's not that way. You know, the story is told about an old man and an old woman driving out of church on Sunday. And they're riding along in one of those big Lincolns, you know, with a bench seat. And the old man's sitting behind the wheel and the woman's sitting there over on the other side, kind of over by the door. And cutting in front of them was this young couple in this hot rod, you know, and it was maybe truck, you know, you see driving around the streets of Tucson. And they pulled in front of them and they screeched away and, and this couple was sitting cl so close to one another that it looked like one body with two heads. You seen that sort of action driving around town? And the old woman looks at the old man and looks at this couple and she looks at the old man and goes, isn't that romantic? Isn't that something? Those two used to just, they're just sitting so close together, they can't get enough of each other. We used to be like that. We used to be that close. What happened to us? There you're sitting over there behind the wheel and here I am sitting over here by the door. And the old man looked at the old woman and said, well, I haven't moved. Sometimes that's how we look at God. God, where have you gone? And God looks at us and says, I haven't moved. Where have you gone? Where are you at? How much do you want to walk with the Lord? How much do you want Him in your life? Understand this. God won't just come into your life and sit dutifully in a little corner. When He comes into your life, He's got big plans for you. Maybe bigger plans for you than you could ever imagine. 
And all He asks from us is a willing heart. And He'll do the rest. I love what I think is probably one of the most significant verses on true repentance that we find in the entire Old Testament. Joel chapter 2, verses 12-14 through 14 says, for those of you who don't know where Joel is, it's right after Hosea. I don't know if that helps. <laughs> but Joel chapter 2 and verse 12 says, Now therefore says the Lord, turn to Me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. So rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, and He relents from doing harm. Who knows if He will turn and relent and leave a blessing behind Him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Oh, turn to the Lord from the heart. You turn to Him from the heart, He'll discover He is ready to meet you 100% of the way. Let's pray. Father, thank You that Your Word tells us such an amazing thing that You love us. And even though, Lord, like the hymnist wrote, Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Our prayer, Lord, is here's my heart. Oh, take and seal it. Seal it for Thy courts above. That's what we desire, Lord. And Father, I pray that if there are any here who have wandered away from You, who feel a distance, let them realize that their feelings can deceive them. But Lord, if there is a reality in their life that they need to turn and give their hearts and lives back to You, I pray that right now in this moment they would realize that You stand with arms open wide ready to receive. A prodigal son, when it just dawned on him to turn back to the father's house, when he was still a long way off, the father ran down the road and fell upon his neck and kissed him and restored him utterly and completely. He didn't have to wait to get home. I pray, Father, that if there are any here that are distant from You, if there are any that have let bitterness or sin in, in some way come between You and they, that right now at this moment, they would just say, Daddy, I come home. I come to You. Restore me. Heal me. Give me Your life and Your love. Thank You for this blessing, Lord. Thank You for Your grace. Thank You for Your mercies. And thank You, Lord, that Your arms are always open wide to us. Hold us close and just give us your, your big heavenly hug now. In Jesus' name, Amen.